Continuing then in our studies in the Gospel according to John, today we take up chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Please follow along as I read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now let me just stop and point out, notice he says here, the third day. The third day from what? Well, from the time he begins to talk about the ministry of John the Baptizer, and we'll say more about this, this sequence of days that he mentions in just a moment. There's a wedding in Cana, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus is there. Verse 2, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now here, again, let me pause for a moment and say that contrary to what it may sound like, this was actually a polite form of address back then, not as rude as it may seem today. Woman? What do you, you know, that sort of thing. No, it, it, it didn't mean that. It was more like ma'am, madam, uh, something like that. Then, but the next phrase that follows it there, what does this have to do with me, my hour has not yet come, is a little more difficult to meaningly put into English. For example, another translation has it, Lady, what right do you have to exercise authority over me? Still another, Dear woman, that's not our problem. But I think the best estimate is that he was saying that he follows his father's will and not that of anyone else's. And his hour has not yet come. It seems to mean that he is asking his mother not to rush him into demonstrating his power and glory before its time. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, the servants at the wedding feast, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the waters with jar. Excuse me, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master would be like the master of ceremonies, the guy in charge of the wedding feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. That was typical in those days, because wine was a a priceless commodity, at least good wine was. They would typically serve the best wine first, and after people had had an hour or two of having some good wine, then they would sort of, and everybody understood this, it wasn't all that secret, but they would switch to the poorer quality wine, since most people wouldn't at that point even notice it. And then verse 11, this, the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Today's today's message, a good time or a good place for a miracle. Now, at the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, we read this, and the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And here in verse 11, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this is an example of the the manifestation of his glory. 
Here in chapter 2, we have that account of the first of his mighty miracles. Now, if you look at chapter 2, verse 11 again, we have this phrase, arcane tone simeon in Greek, the beginning of the signs, literally, is what it says. The first of the signs. Now, I, I point this out because technically, in terms of what we use the term miracle, there is no corresponding Greek word for that in the New Testament. At least as far as I know, I'm happy to be corrected. And what we typically dub a miracle in the New Testament is, technically speaking, translated signs and wonders. Jesus worked signs and wonders. Maybe it's necessary to point that out because the word miracle has become so demeaned and cheapened in our day-to-day speech, whether it's the phony tent evangelist proclaiming that he's grown somebody's withered leg back, or and say, oh, it's a miracle when it was nothing of the kind. Or, you know, you're at the shopping mall on the day before Thanksgiving and uh, or the day after Thanksgiving and you're looking for a parking place and you say, Lord, let me get one right close to the entrance. And there's the parking place. Oh, it's a miracle. I got a parking place. This is not what Jesus is doing. This is the first of his signs and wonders. And whether in terms of chronology or in terms of importance, we should understand that this account is deeply rich in spiritual lessons for us. Now, I believe that there are at least three of these lessons, and that's what I'm going to do is share those with you today. And the first lesson is this. The first takeaway is that the institution of marriage is blessed and honored in the eyes of Christ Jesus. So we learn here from chapter 2 that the Lord Jesus approved of marriage. Indeed, his regard for it was so high that he chose to perform the first great miracle sign of his earthly ministry at a wedding ceremony. The first public action of our Lord's ministry was his attendance at a wedding ceremony. The first of his signs was at a wedding ceremony. And that's no coincidence. It didn't just sort of happen that way. There's several reasons why I believe this was his first public action going to the wedding. And one of those reasons has to do with the importance of marriage in God's plan of creation. We should never forget, Jesus does not stand apart from the rest of the four Gospels or the rest of the New Testament, and especially not the rest of the whole Bible. Marriage is a state of life ordained by God Almighty for the benefit of humanity. It is a, as we say in theological language, a creation ordinance. That is an institution decreed by God to be a part of the created order of things for all time. So together, marriage, or we could say in one phrase, marriage and family, constitute one of the three great covenantal institutions that God has established as the very foundations of human society. The other two are the church and the state. These three institutions, family, church, and state, were created and ordained by God to be the vehicles by which his kingdom is to be proclaimed and spread throughout the world. And those three institutions are directly accountable to him. They don't operate, they're not supposed to operate, I should say, by any other stand plan than that of God's law word. And my friends, you can usually gauge the health or sickness of any society by looking at how that society esteems or does not esteem marriage. Is it any wonder that 
American society is in such bad shape when the biblical view of marriage and family have been under relentless attack for over a century, and now we're living with the consequences of the capitulation of Christians to those attacks. It seems that a majority of people in this society, and I don't mean just people in California or New York City, I mean here in South Carolina, it seems that a majority of people do not want a biblical standard of living and the blessings that go along with it. No, then the Lord has allowed us and them, I'll say them, because I think all of us in this room want the biblical standard of marriage and family life. So the Lord has allowed them to have whatever other standard of living that they prefer and the blessings that come from that standard. And of course, I'm using the term blessing there in a sarcastic sense. Those who destroy, attack, and destroy the institution of marriage as a covenant bond between a man and a woman do not have the mind of Christ. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 13.4, Marriage must be honored by all, and marriages must be kept undefiled, because the sexually immoral and adulterers will come under God's judgment. And what we learn from this story, this narrative, is that the presence of Jesus, the blessings of the Lord, these are essential not only to a happy wedding service, but also, more importantly, a happy, successful marriage. The marriage in which there is no place for Christ, that is, for the law word of God, is not one that can be expected to prosper. Now, one thing that we must take note of is the fact that John wrote this book from within the framework of the frame of mind as someone trained in the Older Testament scriptures. You see that in the very opening pages of the gospel. But you also see it in the book of Genesis. Genesis is clearly being referenced in these very words, in the beginning was the word, the logos. Now I want you to notice something else here. As we read these first several chapters, John 1 and 2, John records the day and in some cases the hour of the day that such and such a thing happened. Now that's why I sort of emphasized that when I was reading the text. Why do you suppose he's doing that? What would be his purpose? Well, of course, it is true that he's bearing witness to actual events that really took place, and he's supporting that with references to the days that these things happened. That's how you do when you give a report of absolute truth as opposed to some mythological thing or other. But there's more to it than that. John is using the book of Genesis as a backdrop for his gospel. And when you count the days that he mentions in the first two chapters, you find that they parallel almost precisely the six days of creation given to us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Let me give you some examples. The first day that he mentions, the delegation of the Jews are sent to interrogate John the baptizer. Uh, chapter 1, 29 to, uh, 19 to 28. Then the second day that he points out, John the baptizer proclaims Jesus as the Lamb of God. Chapter 1, 29. And then the third day... Two of John's disciples seek out and follow Jesus, chapter 135 to 42. The fourth day, we have that incident with Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's chapter 145 to 51. And now here, three days later, the third day following Jesus' discussion with Nathaniel, we have a wedding feast at Cana. 
And that is therefore the sixth day in the sequence that John is calling to our attention. Now let me ask you out there, do you happen to remember what God did on the sixth day of creation? That'd be a good uh, presbytery exam question, wouldn't it? Well, if you're having trouble coming up with the answer, Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. This is Genesis uh, 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, take dominion over the earth, and then it goes on from there. So, the Lord God, in the original creation, brings a man and a woman together to bless them and command them to honor him as husband and wife. And now so too, John the Apostle tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the sixth day of this sequence, he is present at the wedding of a man and a woman. And by his presence... He reinforces the blessings of God on the institution of marriage as defined by Holy Scripture. So there is here then a pointing us backward to the original creation. But, and this is something else, if we're reading this as full-orbed, whole Bible Christians, we have to see that he's also pointing us forward. Forward to a greater marriage feast than the one at Cana. One that awaits the people of God. It will be a wedding where Christ himself will be the bridegroom and believers will be his bride. And it is no coincidence that one of the most riveting and visible references to that greater marriage feast that comes at the return of our Lord is given to us in, guess where? The the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, written by whom? John the Apostle, the same author of This gospel according to John. Blessed indeed will be those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. All right, then that's the first point. The first lesson that we take away is that the the blessing of marriage, Jesus here reinforces the biblical mandate of the creation ordinance of marriage as defined by God's law. But then secondly, another thing that we take away from this, uh, very different, not so theological, but in, of course everything is theology. But the second point is there are times in life when it is lawful and fully appropriate to have a good time. Can you believe that? To, have a, to, be, to be joyful and rejoice. Jesus did not refuse to be a guest at a festive, rollicking occasion. All right, now you may say, well, wait a minute. I don't see anything here in the text that says this was a rollicking occasion. Where are you getting that from? Well, I'm getting it from the cultural studies that have been done and from what we know of life in that time in ancient Palestine and in the Galilee area. Uh, These people didn't come together for a wedding feast and just sit around and stare at each other. They had a good time. Wine flowed abundantly. It was a festival. And if I remember my studies correctly, the wedding feast would typically go on for a full week. He did not refuse to be a part of that. And this ought to give those, frankly, who advocate a life of total separation from the joys of this material world, it ought to give them pause to think. Jesus was not a monkish uh, ascetic who withdrew from society to live out in the desert somewhere to avoid contact with the unwashed and unlovely people of his day. Nor did he shun parties 
and having a good time when the occasion was fitting and proper. We don't often connect with it, but if you read all four of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus before his arrest and murder, you will see that he frequently was getting together for, with people at their homes and having uh, you know, parties and feasts. Now, you know, we think of the term party didn't always conjure up something you know, um, civilized, so to speak. But how, whatever term you use, this is what he was doing. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Secret because most people don't realize it. One of the things that made it difficult for Jesus' quote, biological family, is another custom in that place and in that time, is that if you were invited to someone, to someone's home for a party, come to my house and let's have a, a get-together, a festivity, that it was considered proper in that culture at that time for you to reciprocate that. And Jesus' family were not wealthy people, and he was doing this so often, getting together, accepting invitations to people's homes, or organizing themselves at somebody else's house. He was putting his own family in a difficult spot. That's why there's one, I, I, unfortunately I don't have the reference here, but you can do a word search. There's one place where his own family show up and say, please pardon him, he's crazy. They couldn't figure out why he was doing all these kind of things. But the point is, he did not shun parties and having a good time when the occasion was fitting and proper. And I think it would be appropriate for me to address yet once again something that has concerned and confused many people because of the unfortunate teachings of teetotalers and fundamentalists regarding the use of alcohol and wine. I think most of us in this room, we know uh, the, the facts here. Uh, if you're interested in this su subject about the use of alcohol and wine in the Bible and among Christians, I can't uh, recommend enough our former pastor, Dr. Ken Gentry's book on that. Um, the name escapes me, but I'm sure we have it in our church library. He wrote an entire book about this. Well, let me begin by saying in Ecclesiastes 10.19, we read, Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens the heart, gladdens life. In John chapter 2, our Lord approves both of the wedding feast and the use of the wine. I mean, after all, he turned water into wine so everybody, and presumably that includes himself, could have enough to drink. Now, there are some well-meaning Christians who tell you that the word wine does not refer to an alcoholic beverage. Rather, they claim the word technically means unfermented grape juice. So he turned water into unfermented grape juice. I'm not sure where the miracle would be in that action, even if it were true. But the fact is, the Greek term translated wine here, both in non-Christian Greek uh, society and in terms of the New Testament, the word always meant the alcoholic beverage, the fermented grape with alcohol content, wine. And just to be clear, Jesus did not, on this occasion or any other, approve of drunkenness. While you will not find one place in Scripture that I know of, at least, that prohibits the moderate use of alcohol and wine, in the Bible you find constant condemnation of drunkenness. But the main point that we should take away from this is that faith in Jesus Christ and a life devoted to living by God's standards should never make us melancholy and withdrawn from the world. 
Um, as a matter of fact, quite the opposite. It should increase our involvement in this world. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians have a license to sin. But let's be a realistic, shall we? As we look around society today, and we see the qualities of our culture as reflected in things like music and art and literature and television and, and movies, well, the, the quality, if you can call it that, ranges from the boorish and the mundane to the mediocre at best to the vile and disgusting and blasphemous at worst. Why? How did things ever become that way? Okay, there, there's always been that sort of thing in the margins of society. I recall growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, in the you know mid '60s and into the early '70s. But you could there was a, you know Columbia has a, a church on every corner, a buckle of the Bible Belt, as all South Carolina probably could be considered at one time. But even there, there were places that you could have gone in town. And engaged in some pretty disgusting activity. 1950s, 1960s, when everybody still had short hair and dressed to the T. So it's always been there. But going back decades, even a hundred years, Christians slowly but surely abandoned those parts of our culture to the devil. They circled the wagons. They pulled the bedsheets up over their heads rather than disciple the nations and teach them all things that our Lord Jesus commanded them. So, we have preferred to let our nation and our Christian culture and civilization go to the devil in a handbasket, and that is exactly what has happened. The Christian who withdraws from society and refuses to have anything to do with the areas of culture that I just mentioned, and the Christian who walks around with the face as downcast and melancholy as if he is always attending a funeral service, I believe that does injury to the cause of the kingdom message. But a cheerful, kindly spirit is the recommendation of a good believer. It is a sad misfortune that we Christians cannot or will not smile. And I fully realize that this is an area of our Christian lives where it's challenging to maintain a balance, to, to walk that middle path between the extremes of wasting our time and being foolish and foolhardy, versus being wise and bold with our Christian witness. So each of us needs to be on guard, and we need to know our strengths and our own limitations when it comes to these kind of things. And the fact is, one believer can go without risk where perhaps another believer cannot or should not go. But for all of that, with all these qualifications and caveats, I think the Lord himself points out the way for us. Whenever we go to some festive activity, we should go with the same spirit and presence of mind that our Lord Jesus had. And let us never go anywhere, any place that the Lord himself would not go. And let us always be about our Father's business. And like Jesus, let us seek to promote joy and happiness in this life, a sinless joy and a joy in the Lord. If our Lord went to a wedding party at Cana, there are surely occasions where we too can go to parties and festive occasions and do likewise. And as we do that, let's remember that if we go where our Lord went, we ought to go in his spirit and with his power in our lives. So then the first lesson we take away is the, the, the blessing of marriage endures from the beginning of creation. But then secondly, we are, we, we have an encouraging word here to get out and be involved in the world and, in, and be joyous when the occasion is proper for it. But then thirdly and finally, 
we see the demonstration of the power of our Lord Jesus. By simple exertion of his will, he changed ordinary well water into the best wine. Of course, this is one of several of the signs and wonders that most Christians are familiar with, especially if you've grown up in church, you've heard these kind of stories from childhood. But I think sometimes in the constant hearing of these miracle stories, it sort of builds up an insulation to us that we don't really appreciate the stupendous nature of it. So I want you to notice, perhaps some of us for the first time, the way that this miracle has unfolded. We are not told of any outward or visible action that Jesus or anybody else did, either before, during, or after this miracle's happening. For example, the text does not say Jesus went over and touched the water pots. It doesn't say he went over and laid hands on the water pots. It doesn't say that he went over and literally spoke to the pots of water. I command you, turn into wine. It doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't even say that he prayed to his heavenly Father for the miracle to be accomplished. He simply willed the change of this water into wine, and it happened. Now, you can search Scripture from beginning to end, and you will not find any prophet or apostle who worked a miracle in this particular manner. And you won't find that, because this is the only human being who could have done such a thing, and that is God in human flesh. So, the same Lord who exercised this power in that day, on behalf of his friends is still doing so today. But we today have no need for Jesus' bodily presence here with us in order to receive those kinds of blessings from Him. You see, if our Lord wills our salvation and our well-being, if He wills that our spiritual needs be met, then it is as if He were sitting right here among us today. In other words, the will of Christ is as mighty and powerful as his actions. And just because he is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will, we ought always to follow him and be obedient. Jesus demonstrates with this his first sign and wonder, his first miracle, that he is God. And the flip side is, we are not. I want to leave you today with those well-chosen words of Mary, the mother of our Lord, who speaks a message, frankly, for all Christians in every age, where in verse 5, she says simply, whatever he says, you do it. Do what he tells you. And may we, by God's grace and the power of his Spirit, obey him and indeed do what he's told us in his word from Genesis through Revelation. Let us pray.